this Easter morning, I want to begin with a curious question. Why did the chief priests have it in for Jesus? Why were they so hell-bent on resisting and opposing Jesus that they were even willing to get his blood on their hands? Plotting, scheming behind closed doors, rigging his trial in the middle of the night, inciting a mob to cry out for Jesus' public execution on a Roman cross. Why? Mark tells us that Pilate perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. Sometimes the answer to a question is a complex mix of reasons. Sometimes the answer is quite simple. The chief priests perceived in Jesus a rival a rival priest. <clears throat> Ultimately, the crucifixion of Jesus for the chief priests was for no other reason than job security. That's why they had it in for Jesus. John's Gospel tells us about a closed-door meeting where the chief priests pinpoint their concern. What are we to do? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They were worried that if they let Jesus continue, Jesus would take away their job and take away their people. You know what? They were right. They were right to be worried. The Gentile nations had their own epic heroes who had supposedly come back from the dead. The Greeks had Odysseus. The Romans had Aeneas. But when the God of Israel brought Jesus the Messiah back from the dead, the chief priests chose instead to circulate a false myth rather than accept the eyewitness testimony of the soldiers that they themselves had placed beside the tomb. Who bore witness themselves that Jesus, and in fact, was alive. We've seen him come out of the grave. They would not receive it. They'd rather circulate a myth. And why? They perceived that if Jesus was alive, it was the end of their livelihood. If Jesus was alive, it meant they were out of a job. If Jesus was alive, then he was the great high priest and not them. If Jesus was alive, they, the chief priests under the law, they, the sons of Levi, must surrender and pledge total loyalty and obedience to Jesus. When Jesus entered the scene, his mere presence revealed in the chief priest this deep insecurity. They knew the truth about themselves. They were dying men ministering within a weak priesthood under a useless law. 
Those aren't my words. Those are the words of Hebrews we're about to read here in a moment. The cross was about job security. The priests made it their singular united mission to prevent Easter from happening because the moment Jesus stepped out of the grave, their careers were finished. If he lives, the law has lost its power. But we know this morning that all their efforts, the tortuous death on the cross, the giant boulder they rolled in front of the tomb, the guards set to prevent Jesus from being able to walk out of the tomb if he should rise, the official seal placed on the stone by the authority of the chief priest, Jesus, you shall not come out of here. Only help realize their deepest fear that Jesus continues forever. Jesus lives forever and Jesus is greater. And so turn with me this morning to Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to explore those truths as we continue our time moving through the letter to the Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7. Among other things, obviously there's a lot going on at Easter, but one of the things that is happening on Easter is a battle between priests. That's what's taking place. A battle between the old guard and the better. The former and the one who has come forever. Last week as we concluded chapter 6, if you recall, all most of chapter 5 and 6 was this long digression where the author of Hebrews was sort of slapping us around and saying, you guys aren't ready for this. You're babies. You're not ready for steak. You want me to just give you the, the gospel in a bottle again, don't you? Well, he finally finishes that digression and he gets back to his main line of argument in verse 19 of chapter 6. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the statement raises one particular question in our minds. We say, this is fantastic. I love this. Great. Jesus has gone into the most holy place. He's a forerunner. He's an anchor for our soul. I'm headed where he is. But I've got this question. Who in the heck is Melchizedek? This is all great. I believe this, but I have no idea who you're talking about. And thankfully, the author of Hebrews is going to explain to us who this man is. And so if you found chapter 7 of Hebrews, let's stand together as we read. This is verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, 
having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priest, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is a necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life for it is witnessed of him you are a priest forever after the order of melchizedek for on the one hand a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness for the law had made nothing perfect but on the other hand a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to god and it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. You may be seated. As I mentioned before, this passage raises two pertinent questions, and we're going to see that Easter is integral to answering both of them. The first is the one we've already asked, who the heck is Melchizedek? 
And then question number two, what the heck does this have to do with Jesus? So first of all, I have no idea who this character is. And then secondly, I don't understand what this obscure Old Testament character has to do with Jesus. Question number one, who is Melchizedek? And if you find yourself asking that question, you're not alone. In fact, there's a perfectly good reason why you may not have any clue who this guy is. His name appears one time in the book of Genesis and one time in the book of Psalms. And that's it. Eight times in the book of Hebrews. More occurrences by far in this book than in the entire rest of the Bible. So you don't know who he is because Melchizedek is in fact an obscure Old Testament character. The story in which he appears is only four verses in the chapter 14th chapter of Genesis. It's understandable if you read right over top of him and took no notice. He appears out of nowhere, graces the pages of Scripture for four verses, and then disappears off the pages of Scripture forever. Thank goodness our author takes the time to explain who the heck this Melchizedek character is, beginning in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, he's saying, it's understandable, you don't know who he is, let me explain to you who this character is. King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. And this summary is basically just as long as the story itself. This is what happened. This is it. And we know Abraham, I would guess. And perhaps you remember the story of how uh, Abraham's nephew Lot was carried off with all of his family and possessions by Canaanite kings. And then Abraham had to go and rescue his nephew. And he ended up carrying off all their stuff. The story goes that as he was making his way back, he encountered a man named Melchizedek, who was the king of Salem. That is, king of what would one day become Jerusalem. And that this man was a priest of the Most High God, that is, the priest of Abraham's God. We read this morning that Melchizedek shared with Abraham a feast of bread and wine, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything he had won in battle. And so then verse 2 explains to us the significance of his name and of his title. First, by translation of his name, Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness. And then by translation of his title, king of Salem means king of peace. So he's king of righteousness and king of peace. And he reigns in a place called Jerusalem. Is that ringing any bells for anyone? <laughs> it should. Well, verses 3 through 10, our author begins to specifically lay out three particular things that are true of Melchizedek and explain the significance of his identity. First, this man continues forever. 
He continues forever. Secondly, he lives forever. And thirdly, he is greater. So first, he continues forever. Verse 3. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So that thing that made us skip over Melchizedek, the fact that he appears out of nowhere and then disappears into nowhere, is not actually coincidental or accidental on the part of God in the scriptures. It's actually purposeful. We don't know who his father is. We don't know who his mother is. He has no genealogical record. We have no idea where this guy came from or to where he went. He just continues forever. As far as the scriptures are concerned, his priesthood knows no end. It just continues. That is why the one other mention of this man in Psalm 110 says this, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The order of Melchizedek is an order of forever priests. That's what kind of priests they are. Ones that continue forever. Priests that never stop being priests. So who is Melchizedek? Number one, he continues forever. So secondly, he lives forever. Verse 3 points out that the scriptures do not record his birth, do not record his death. He has neither beginning of days nor end of life. And then in verse 8, when it compares this man to the Levitical priests, the things that he draws out is that the Levitical priests are dying men. But with regards to this man, the thing that is testified about him is simply that he lives. That's all the scriptures say about him. The testimony of scripture says nothing about his death. All it testifies is that he lives. And so this the author tells us, is another integral piece of his identity. Not only does he continue forever, but he lives forever. And finally, and thirdly, he is greater, and in this instance, particularly greater than Levi the Levitical priests. Look at verse 4. See how great this man was? To whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils. See how great this man was. Why did Abraham give a tenth, a tithe, to this priest? Not because there was a law saying he had to. Not because there was some rule that required him to. Simply because when he encountered this man along his way, he recognized how great he was. And it was his greatness that compelled him to give. Traditionally, when you give a tithe, it's, it's a tribute. It's saying, you're better than me. I am the inferior, you are the superior, you're the king, and I am not. 
Verse 6, this man who does not have his descent from them, that is from Abraham's offspring, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promise, it is beyond dispute, the inferior, that is Abraham, as great as he was when he met Melchizedek, he recognized this is his superior. And he gave a tithe to him. And by extension, if this man is greater than Abraham, he's greater than all of Abraham's descendants as well, including the Levites. Verse 9. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestors when Melchizedek met him. So, who the heck is Melchizedek? Number one, he continues forever. Number two, he lives forever. And number three, he's greater. Well, that's all in well and good, and, and maybe you appreciate an Old Testament lesson as much as I do. Um, but this is Easter, and still the question presses upon us then, great, we understand who this guy is, but what on earth does this have to do with Jesus? <laughs> and what does this have to do with Easter? Well, verse 11 introduces the first problem, and the problem is this. We have in the Old Testament a law and a priesthood that could not fix the people. Could not perfect them. No matter how much the priest of Levi taught the people and explained the law and offered sacrifices and said, obey God, obey the law, the people didn't even get one step closer to doing it. In fact, every time they were presented with the law of God, guess what they did? They used it as an opportunity to disobey to take a step away from God. So, the coming of another priest of Levi under that same broken, useless law is not going to fix anything. We need a priest from a different order. Ah, well, we have a different order. This obscure guy from Genesis 14, he has a priesthood. His name is Melchizedek. Maybe we can get a guy from that order to come save us. Second problem, Jesus wasn't a Levite. So as great and awesome and mighty and saving as Jesus might be, according to the rules that God himself laid down in the law, Jesus is disqualified to be our priest under the law. Because you got to be a descendant of Levi. Verse 14, he presents us with the problem. It is evident that our Lord Jesus was descended from Judah. We know the story. We've read his genealogy. He's not from the tribe of Levi. He's from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So the question is, if Jesus is disqualified under the law to be our priest, is there some other order under which Jesus might be qualified. Ah, Melchizedek is our answer again. So what the heck does this have to do with Jesus, you say? Melchizedek has everything to do with Jesus. Whatever was true of Melchizedek, we're going to find is true of Jesus. Does Jesus fit all of the qualifications? Yes, indeed. Look at verse 3 again. 
This is speaking of Melchizedek. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of days, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. This man, Melchizedek, <coughs> resembles Jesus. He looks just like him. So all the things we just discovered about him are also going to be true of Jesus. And then verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, verse 16, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. So Jesus doesn't become a priest because he's born from the right person. He becomes a priest by the power of an indestructible life. So whether you're in the Old Testament with Melchizedek looking forward, Melchizedek and Jesus are a perfect match. And whether you're in the New Testament with Jesus looking back at Melchizedek, the two of them are a perfect match. Melchizedek resembles Jesus, and Jesus arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. And so we realize these three same things are true of Jesus. He continues forever. He lives forever. And he is greater. Let's look at these briefly. Number one, he continues forever. Verse 17. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I think we get so used to hearing this word and using this word forever that it becomes trite and loses its meaning, but it is the key word in this verse. You are a priest forever. You are a forever priest. The fact that Jesus' priesthood knows no end is what qualifies him to intercede for us. He continues forever, and we have this on God's sworn oath. Verse 21, But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who has said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. There's a reason the chief priests in Jesus' day were so insecure. There's a reason why they were worried the Romans might come and take away their place and take away their people. It's because it had happened before. 400 years before, the Babylonians had come and had taken away their place and taken away their people, and guess what? The Levitical priesthood, as they knew it, finished. Stopped. And guess what? Not too long after Jesus would ascend into heaven, the Romans would end up coming and doing the very thing they were so afraid of. And on top of that, verse 23, not only the priesthood was in jeopardy, but individual priests couldn't continue. Verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. The thing that's true of the Levitical priests is they don't continue forever. But he, verse 24, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. The foreverness of Christ's priesthood.
priesthood is important. It's a forever priest that God was bent from the beginning before the dawn of creation. God was bent on giving us a forever priest. And it's the foreverness of Christ that qualifies him as that priest. Why was God so bent on this? God was not going to be satisfied until the salvation of his people was eternally secure. And a priest with weakness. A priest whose priesthood could end one day is a liability. God was not satisfied until our salvation was forever secure. He was not happy with high priests who were prevented by death from doing their duty. This means that even in installing the Levitical priesthood, it was a short-term measure. God was not going to be happy with that for us forever. He was not satisfied until he had secured a once-for-all, now and forever, salvation for all of his people. If there's a time that the priest who's supposed to be mediating between us and God, that that priesthood could come to an end. That would be the time that our salvation would be in jeopardy. Praise God that it is in Christ's eternal nature that he in and of himself continues forever that he is perfectly qualified to be our priest. Secondly, he lives forever. If we hear verse 16 again, it says, Jesus has become a priest not on the basis of some law that says you got to be descended from a certain person and tribe. That's not how he became a priest. He became a priest solely by the power of an indestructible life. It's precisely because Jesus walked out of the grave completely unmarred by death, indeed glorified in his eternal life. It's that fact that Easter Sunday happened that he is qualified as our priest forever. You see, death and resurrection were absolutely necessary to prove to everyone the indestructibility of Jesus' life. Good Friday and Good Easter were required to prove that Jesus is qualified. It's all well and good to claim that someone has an indestructible life. But you've got to prove it. This is, uh, this is how infomercials work. right? Uh, you've got something like OxyClean. And they're doing an infomercial about it. And they're making all these wild and crazy claims, you know. OxyClean, it'll take out red wine stains. It'll take out blood stains. It'll take out motor oil stains. But are we going to be satisfied with them just making those kinds of outlandish claims? No way. Well, they know that. And so then what do they do? They're going to demonstrate that what they claim is true. They pour red wine on that white shirt. They pour human blood on that white shirt. I don't know where they get the human blood from. They pour motor oil on that shirt. And then they put it in the wash with OxyClean, and wow, it comes out and it's sparkling white just as it was before. Thanks, OxyClean. You have infomercials out there for products, and they're always claiming that the thing they have is indestructible. I saw a commercial recently for a 
shoes that claim to be indestructible. And of course, the claim's not enough. They're going to demonstrate it to you. So they've got some guy, and he's wearing the shoes, and he's walking on a bed of nails. And those nails aren't going through his feet. And they're dropping anvils on this guy's foot. I don't know who they get to volunteer for these demonstrations. But they've, they're taking the circular saw, and the sparks are flying, but nothing's happening to the shoes. You can't just claim something is indestructible. You've got to prove it. It's one thing to say Jesus has an indestructible life. It's another to prove it by putting his life to the test. That's the cross. There is no greater test for the indestructibility of someone's life. The cross is like the world's greatest infomercial, where the product turns out to be even greater than advertised. After all he endured, the suffering, the beating, the nails, the torture, on Easter morning, Jesus demonstrated that not even death itself could put a dent in his indestructible life. And the reason he kept the nail wounds was only as proof that he had passed the test. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He lives forever. Brothers and sisters, we have no fear that one day death will steal our priest from us. No fear that our salvation will ever be in jeopardy. Why? Because he always lives. And as long as he lives, verse 25 tells us this is what he lives forever to do. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for you and I. Easter guarantees our eternal salvation because it demonstrates this truth about Jesus. He lives forever. Finally, this morning, he continues forever. He lives forever and this Easter morning, we celebrate that he is greater. Verse 18 says, Jesus set aside the law in order to give us a better hope. Verse 22 says, Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. The law gave us a worthless commandment, one that could not make us perfect. The law gave us priests who were weak. The law gave us priests who were sinners like us who offered up sacrifices daily that could do nothing to touch our sin. But the oath of God gives us something greater. Verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained. These are all things that are true of him that were not true of the other priests, separate from sinners and exalted, vaulted, greater than all above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And so, brothers and sisters, this Easter Sunday, let us rejoice in the fact that he continues forever. Our salvation is secure because his priesthood knows no end. We can have great confidence to draw near to God and have a better hope because when we draw near, we hear Jesus and the activity 
that he ever lives to do, which is to pray and intercede for us. Let's celebrate this Easter Sunday that he lives forever. The indestructibility of our Savior has been proven beyond any shadow of doubt. Death itself cannot prevent him from ministering to us the grace and the mercy that we have need of in time of need. The day Jesus dies again is the day that your salvation is in jeopardy. Let us celebrate this Easter Sunday that Jesus is greater. I wonder whether there are priests in your life that you need to abandon. That you are hoping will save you. What other priests are you putting hope in to perfect you? Whatever it is, Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. The king of righteousness, the king of peace, the forever priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let us abandon hope in all others. May we turn our lives into a tithe that we lay at the feet of Jesus and we declare to all the world, Jesus is greater. He's greater. He continues forever. He lives forever. He is greater. Hallelujah, this Easter, we celebrate Christ arose. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that even as we receive your word, you are on your throne interceding for us, that your mercy, the mercy and grace of God would be poured down among us by your spirit. I pray, Lord, give us great hope, a better hope, a trust in you. We thank you for being all of these things to us. It's in your name we trust and pray. Amen.